At Georgia Tech, a professor put a challenge in front of the students. The professor said, you have to sort marbles as fast as you can, using gravity as the power. So it was like this, this top to bottom kind of thing. Put the marbles on top, get the marbles to the bottom. Many students created uh, all of these complicated shoots and a scoring system to try to figure out how they could get the marbles from the top to the bottom, you know, different size marbles, little marbles, big marbles. And the whole goal was separate the marbles using gravity from top to bottom. And so one student in particular created a single tube and then basically just put a plate across the top. And so dumped all the marbles in the top and then the plate just kept them in place. And so when the, when the professor got ready and said, go, and everyone was going to release their contraptions to try to get the marbles from the top to the bottom as, as fast as they could, sort it all out. Uh, this guy in particular who moved just the chute or just the plate and the marbles came down the chute in like 0.1 seconds or something like that. And he won the competition because of the speed, because he realized the greatest score maximizer in the equation for doing this was speed. The rest of the stuff really didn't matter. If you really actually got the marbles sorted or not, it didn't matter. And of course, everyone was frustrated. The class had a collective groan because it was almost like this guy cheated the system. But he just knew what the rubric was and what was going to be graded the most. And so speed was the greatest maximizer. Some of you are tired, anxious, frustrated, because you're doing so many activities to try to keep up, to get success, to eliminate stress, yet becoming more stressed because you haven't considered the scorecard. You haven't considered the rubric. Do you even know the rubric? Have you even checked what you're scored on? Let me give you another example. There was an article in the New York Times called Why Didn't Kodak Create Instagram? The whole point of the article was that because of their corporate culture, no one could walk up and go, hey, I've got this crazy idea because Kodak already had success. They already had much success. There's a great danger when you move from innovation mode to protection mode. What happens is that there is a level of success that got you to where you are, so you stop looking forward. This stop uh, meeting the evolving needs of the people you're serving. In fact, one person wrote a whole thesis on Kodak's failure. Do you know what Kodak invested in during the digital revolution? Paper quality. At a time when people were spending less money on printing out photos, Kodak was thinking, hmm, what if the piece of paper was really good and expensive? A possible moment of innovation was exchanged for protection, was fixated on the success they already had. We have a tendency to fixate on what we can see and stick to as a visible scorecard we know. In every area of life, parenting, life stage, work, friendships, hobbies, side hustles, income stream, leisure, I could go on. I call this our success scorecard. We have this image or we have the scorecard played out and we have this visual of this is what we're supposed to do in that area of life, whatever it is. At some level, we all have 
this scorecard. And we think we should have one. In fact, I would say that we should have a scorecard of sorts for every area of life. But just like the marble competition, we have a tendency to miss the real score maximizer. Now, this isn't a unique challenge for us today. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter. In fact, he wrote four letters to a church in Corinth. By the time we get to his, what we know as Second Corinthians, the second letter, the church is struggling to determine the success scorecard. They had rejected Paul and his authority to, to, and his identity to competing and, and co- just incompatible scorecards in their lives. They were looking at Paul. They were looking at the, the message that he was proclaiming, the, the way he wanted the Corinthian church to follow Jesus. And they were trying to evaluate the way in which Paul was doing things versus the competing scorecards of their life. So here's the rundown as we get to our teaching passage today. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Even though it's called, again, to Corinthians or 2 Corinthians in our Bibles, there are clues within this letter that there is not, this is not the second thing he ever wrote to the Corinthian church. Paul started the Corinthian church during one of his missionary journeys around the ancient world. And you can read that story in the book of Acts in chapter 18. And so after moving on from this church, after moving on from Corinth, he got a report that there were some problems in the church. So he wrote his first letter to address these problems. It appears that many in the church rejected Paul's teaching and that letter and rebelled against his authority. Again, competing scorecards. Paul then visits Corinth in what he calls his painful visit. Leaving once again, he follows up with a letter written in anguish and with tears. And after all these measures, most of the Corinthians realize their arrogance and apologize to Paul and let him know that they wanted to reconcile. So Paul writes to them this letter to assure them of his love and commitment for them despite their continued struggles. Every day, we are embattled with faulty scorecards, just like the Corinthian church, competing scorecards. And Paul is going to challenge that notion, the the competing scorecards in our life. He's going to exchange the scorecard mentality with another image, that of a mirror. The Apostle Paul is writing to this church because they are failing to accurately represent God within the world. And so all people are like broken mirrors. The potential to fully and accurately reflect God in all areas of life is present. However, sin has caused the mirror to break. And we don't see God accurately, and others don't see God accurately in us. It is the Holy Spirit that then repairs the mirrors through our faith in Christ. All who have the Spirit gaze with unveiled faces on the face of Christ. Believers are transformed into Christ's likeness by gazing intently on him. They are transformed into his image from glory to glory, as we'll see in a few weeks, just as he bears the very image of God, being God's mirror, God's wisdom. Believers are called to be the mirror of Christ to the the world. So together, for the next three weeks, that is the issue we'll tackle together. Competing scorecards 
that help us not accurately reflect God to the world. And so the Corinthians, they are trying to utilize the scorecard of their culture. If they can measure up a certain way, if Paul measures up, then they can have confidence in a world with conflicting character and priorities. The whole misstep here is one of preservation rather than prioritization. They're trying to check their own life with something else that's fractured. I got to ask the question, as you look to your life, where does your confidence come from? Where is your confidence? As a church, where is our confidence? In verses 1 through 6, Paul will set up this idea of basically being God's recommendation letter to the world by our transformed lives. But getting ahead of myself a little bit. So beginning in verse 4, Paul writes, Such this is the confidence we have before God. The such he's referring to is the Corinthians' lives changing, being Christ's letters. He's saying, listen, you're looking for a letter of recommendation from me that proves you're on the right track to to help you understand what the scorecard is so that when other people look at your lives and go, yeah, they're on the right track, of course they know what they're doing. The the Corinthians can look and say, look, we're we're following this leader. We're following this leader, Paul. Look at his credentials. Look at his letters of recommendation. And, And they're defaulting to a faulty scorecard. There's a competing value system. And it went so deep that the Corinthians had wanted Paul to get these letters of recommendation to prove his authority and credentials. And of course, this is ridiculous to Paul. The church wouldn't even exist if he hadn't started it. They wouldn't even be a gathering group of people looking to live out the way of Jesus within the world if Paul hadn't come in with the message of Jesus' perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection, and hopeful return to make all things new. And he says they are his proof of recommendation, written by the Spirit. Paul here in chapter 3, in the first couple verses, begins to quote several prophets that talk about how the Spirit is working in the lives and how this was a prophesied day Specifically, he's looking at Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where the Spirit has written a letter of recommendation on their hearts. The Corinthians shouldn't need any more proof than that. What is proof enough is the change that is manifested in their life. And of course, that's the kicker, that there's a change, an ongoing change because of Jesus. Second, Paul writes in verse 5, our adequacy is from God. Meaning, when you represent God within the world, as you think of yourself as a letter of recommendation on behalf of God to the world, because of the change that's going on in your life, you're actually not pointing to yourself as the reason for the change. Paul does not seek credit because uh, of Jesus Christ, he, he, or because of himself, Paul seeks credit because 
of Jesus and what he has done in Paul's life. And so, so Paul, what he does is he almost says, as you look at me, I'm redirecting you back to Jesus. Everything good, every change that I have in my life is because of Jesus. Let me give you a practical example of how this shows up. When you meet your friend for coffee, or you're talking on social media, or you're, you're checking in uh, with you know, someone that maybe you haven't seen in several years, regardless of how recent or how far it's been since you've seen them, and you, you guys are in conversation whether about different things, and they start to ask you about your life, and, and you insert the, well, I just decided to do this, or I thought it was best here. When we point to ourselves, we actually use the word I. Maybe you found yourself, as you talk about your story and how God has worked in your life, you, find, you found the word, well, I just found Jesus, or I, I decided this is what I need to do. What Paul is, is saying here is you're, you're making yourself adequate in, your, in the other person's eyes and in your own. You had enough skill and mindset to decide for yourself that you needed to take this step. Rather, our adequacy comes from God. Rather, we should seek to point out God's activity. We should seek to connect the dots between the change in our life and God. So, so when we, maybe we, he frees us from an addiction, or, or we get some financial provision, or, or we find a level of community that, that, is, that is liberating, that's freeing, that's refreshing, or, or, or we... We seek to build relationships that are healthy and purposeful and loving as opposed to being toxic and complaining or, you know, and demeaning. And people go, we noticed something different about you. You should be able to connect the dots instead of saying, well, of course, this is, this is what it means to be a good person or I thought it was best or better to be this way. In fact, rather we should say, no, it's because of Jesus that I've seen the change go from an apparent sin to apparent grace, freedom, love, joy, or peace in this circumstance or situation. It's because of Jesus that there is a change, that I have a different set of character and a different, pro- different priorities within my life. Lastly, Paul writes in verse 6, For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Next week, I'll develop this a little bit further as we compare and contrast what's called the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Here's a simple example that I think will prepare us for that topic. And I think give us a real good point of application today. Here's why the letter kills and the Spirit gives life. It's like the difference between a statement and a question. It's When things are a statement, we tend to go, well, just tell me what to do. Just give me what I'm supposed to do. And even if we don't like what's being told to do, again, ends in a period, ends in a statement, we can rebel or reject and say, yeah, I'm not going to choose to do that. And then we have justification because so-and-so just told me what to do. However, when it's a question and someone asks, well, what do you think you should do in that circumstances? How, how, how How does God's word shape this moment or this situation or this circumstance? We then have to answer for ourselves and then act upon it. We are the responsible party in that moment, for we have to account 
and be responsible for our own actions. And again, as a follower of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit who is guiding us and directing us. And we know when the, when the Holy Spirit speaks into our life and invites us to have an action, have a response, have this type of character, that we're not rebelling against what someone else tells us to do. In fact, we're being invited to obey and respond to what God is leading us to do. So the letter is the law in its outward sense, written on tablets of stone. The, le- the letter of the law came by the old covenant, and it was good in itself, but it gave us no power to serve God because it was always telling us what to do. But in fact, we could never completely obey in every and any situation. And ultimately, it did not change our heart. It simply told us what to do. And Paul can say that the letter kills because the law exposes our guilt, and it just kills us before God. We stand under the guilt and shame because we can't meet the standard. The scorecard that God lays out, we can't live up to it. And the law thoroughly and completely establishes our guilt, and we internalize that and feel shame. The indwelling spirit, however, becomes for us a law written on our hearts. And what happens is rather than live up to some external standard of perfection and righteousness, we are seen as perfect through the eyes of God, through our faith in Jesus. And the Spirit brings in transformation and guides us and leads us in accordance with the character and priorities of Jesus. It's to guide us and be our law. It isn't that the Holy Spirit replaces the written law, but it completes and fulfills the work of the written law in our hearts. So the Spirit gives life. And with this spiritual life, we can live out the law of God. So we shouldn't think of the Spirit giving life and freedom as permission to live our Christian lives on our experiences or some mystical interpretation of the Bible. Experiences and allegories must be proved true and supported by studying the meaning of the Bible in context. The Spirit and the letter are not enemies friends. They don't work against each other. They work together to lead us to have character and priorities like Jesus. We are so used to playing with a scorecard that we can see that to do the work of having a relationship with the Holy Spirit feels like death rather than life. It feels like a duty or drudgery rather than fulfilling. Because we're so used to being in a world where just just tell me what to do. Tell me how to respond, react. And again, even if we don't like it, we can rebel and provide some sort of justification. But our personal coach through life is the Holy Spirit. And so, together with the Holy Spirit, we are to take the principles of Scripture and apply them to our unique circumstance, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. And if every Jesus follower is supposed to reflect Jesus to the world, then we can't check our reflection in something else that's broken. We have to start our process of reflecting Jesus' character and priorities to the world by identifying that the mirror is broken. And we know the mirror is broken when we look at Jesus. He is the scorecard. Not your friend, not your family member, not so-and-so across the world, Jesus. And here's the beauty of what Paul is saying in the moment. The rubric is not what 
you can do, but the work of Christ within you. The work of Christ that he has already done. He has already lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and, and rose victorious to live the life that you should have lived, that, that we all should live. And this is going to challenge the value system of our life because we know we are supposed to live up to that standard. It's going to challenge our values. It's going to challenge our way of thinking again and again because what we're invited into, what we are to reflect, is not something we can ultimately do by our own effort, by our own strength, and by our own willpower. Not by a, a set of disciplines where we, can, where we can manage it all our own. In fact, no, it's only in surrender. It's only in intently gazing on Jesus every single day throughout our days. Because what we come to learn is not that God values strength or superiority or meeting the scorecard, that God actually values humility and weakness because his love and power were made known through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And when you realize this, that the transforming power of the Spirit makes the way of Jesus our own. And what the Corinthians were kind of coming back to again and again is, but Paul, the way you do things doesn't look like so-and-so. But Paul, how will we know? Because everyone else seems to know. And when we encounter this perspective as a church, this is why we have a value called spirit over self. It's to remind each other when we say or act certain ways that are contrary to the way of Jesus, we can humbly ask, the way of spirit, or the way of self. It starts when we take thoughts captive. When we start to check our motives and our actions and our characteristics and our priorities against other things that are broken, or against other things that, that won't clearly and accurately reflect the way of Jesus. We have to take our thoughts captive and examine them closely. Here are the types of things you may say, post, or seek to actualize by your behavior. Here are the types of things you may want to to bring into reality, or that you, that you may even say by your behavior, that life only has meaning. I, I only have worth if I have influence over others. Life only has meaning. I, I only have worth if I am loved and respected by fill in the blank. Life only has meaning. I, I only have worth if I have this type of experience or quality of life. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if my political or social cause is making progress and is sending an influence and power, and I see it making its way in the world. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if my children and or my parents are happy and happy with me. We must bring those thoughts and, and those elements of our life that live out those thoughts into submission. We must take them captive and say that isn't true. That because of what Jesus has done for me, no, I have inherent worth, value, and purpose. And I should reflect that to the world, and we must take those thoughts captive so we don't reflect those out into the world. 
We must bring them into submission and consider the fruit. And I want to give you a quick visual that may help you identify which visual scorecard you are playing by, where some of those phrases may experience in your life. And so this is not original to me. It's something I put together from a couple different sources. I don't expect this to be exhaustive, but I think this will help us start the journey for the next couple of weeks. So I have to ask, in what areas of your life are you seeking to preserve your way of life over prioritizing the way of Jesus? Finally, we must fight with truth. In essence, fighting with gospel truths. Gospel being the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. His character and priorities. And it's trusting in putting on our, ourselves all that is true of Jesus, and therefore also true of us in Jesus. Every week we try to help you do that as a church through communion. Every day you have the opportunity to fight a faulty scorecard with the real scorecard as you look to Jesus. As we prepare to take communion together as a family, we reflect on God's value system in contrast to our own. And as you reflect in your own life, I'd invite you to consider praying one of these prayers to fight your sin, your frustration, your selfishness with one of these prayers. Maybe we need to start the prayer off as we take communion shortly after this with, Lord, these are the things I've built my life and heart around. Confess that to him. Say, Lord, this is a, a good thing, yet why have I made it so absolute? This could not give me what I desire most. This could not help me and love me as you do. And we're able to pray those prayers as we reflect on Jesus' teaching. See, together as a church, when we are shaped by the story of Jesus and live out our faith every day, playing by a different scorecard, accurately learning to reflect Jesus' character and priorities in all area of life, we will truly be a community of everyday people who are committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come.